He works with us. Words from a Louisville bank employee as she called 911 and hid from the gunman. The lead starts right now. Heartbreaking and horrific, Louisville police released 911 calls from Monday's deadly shooting, including one from the shooter's mom, who insisted that her son was nonviolent and said she did not know where he would get a gun. And a massive inferno, flames engulfing an Indiana recycling plant. The large smoke plume stretches for miles. The toxic risk as the fire is expected to burn for days. Plus, the judge hearing the billion-dollar Dominion versus Fox lawsuit today sanctioned Fox's lawyers accusing the lawyers of withholding evidence and not telling the court the truth in a case about Fox lying to its audience. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead. This afternoon, Louisville police released the frantic 911 calls from the moments after that horrific mass shooting began at a bank on Monday. And you can hear the panic in the voices of the employees who were inside the building when the senseless attack started, including this woman who saw some of her co-workers gunned down. She survived by hiding in a closet. I want to warn our viewers, some of this audio is rather disturbing. Has anybody been shot? Yes. How many people? I don't know. Probably eight or nine. Eight or nine people have been shot? Uh-huh. Are you with any of them? Yes, but I'm in a closet hiding. Police also released a call from the gunman's mother. Made to 911 a few minutes after the shooting began, she said she had heard from her son's roommate that her son might have a gun and that he was headed to Old National Bank, where he worked. She begged for police to not, quote, punish him. Let's get straight to CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokopes. And Shimon, uh, Louisville police released almost, almost an hour of 911 calls and radio transmissions. What stood out most to you? Yeah, this harrowing call, really, Jake, of this woman who's on a board meeting. It's a board meeting that's going on. She's watching it on a video conference, and then she sees the gunman open fire. Take a listen. 911 operator Davis, what is the address of the emergency? Um, um, oh my god, what's the address? Weston Boy, oh my god, there's an active shooter there. Um, oh my god, um, uh, what's the, does anybody know the address to Weston Boy? Oh my god, I just walked down it. Oh, on a pizza? Ma'am? Ma'am? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm Okay, sorry. ma'am. Okay, how do you know you have an active shooter on the site? I just watched it. How'd you watch it? You watched it on a meeting? On a team's meeting? Yes, we were having a board meeting. Video board meeting? Yes, okay. with our commercial team. Okay. Hey, did you see the suspect? Oh, yes. Okay, stay on the line with me here. Stay on the line with me, please, okay? There's a white man. Okay, okay. Let, um, me, let me get the run sent up. Can you just stay on the line with me, okay? Did you see anybody shot or you just see the guy? I see somebody on the floor, and I start, we heard multiple shots, and everybody started okay. saying, oh, my God, okay. and then he came into the port. Okay, stay. Okay. And Jake, just uh, so difficult to listen to there as this woman is describing what she saw on this video conference, gunmen coming in, killing uh, friends of hers, colleagues, co-workers. Um, while that's going on, other calls are coming in to 911 operators, information that was helpful, Jake, to the police. Um, Shimon, the police also released uh, the 911 call that the shooter's 
mother made, um, where she expressed concern that her son might be headed to his place of work with a gun. Yeah, and all of this came, that call coming already after uh, the shooting had started. And she learns of it, that he may be heading to this bank, that uh, he wants to do something violent from a roommate. She then calls 911 and hears her describing that. Yes, my, um, I, my, my son might be he apparently has a gun and he's heading toward the Old National at uh, on Main Street here in Louisville. Main Street, Old National? Yes, and I, this is his mother. I'm so sorry. I'm getting details secondhand. I'm learning to it now. Oh, my Lord. Okay. And what exactly is going on with him? Why, what, it, what is he saying he's doing? I, I don't know. I'm getting this information from the roommate. He apparently left the note. I think he's on... And I think he's beside... He's, he's just, just not... Yes, hurry, shut the door, lock the door and come here. I, I don't know what to do, I need your help. I, I think he, he's never hurt me once, he's a really good kid, please don't come up to him. Please, he, he's non-violent, mm-hmm. he's never done anything. Please, please. Okay, and you don't believe he owns guns? I know he doesn't own any guns. Okay, and so did the roommate mention him having any weapons or anything? Um, I, I don't, I, I don't know, ma'am. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get into my car. My son's talking to me, and they're asking me questions about other things. Um, uh, and I'm shaking. Uh, I, I think maybe his girlfriend. Okay. I don't know. Maybe he saw them. I, I, I don't know. And Jake, that note that she's talking about from the uh, roommate told her of this note. Police have that note. They have not released any details on that. The family. Also, the uh, gunman's family releasing a statement uh, indicating that he was suffering from some kind of uh, mental health issues and that they were trying to get him some help. But certainly there, as you heard from that mother, they certainly never expected anything like this to happen. Jake. All right, Sherman Prokopis, thanks so much. Uh, Turning to Tennessee now, State Representative Justin J. Pearson has been reappointed to fill his seat in the state legislature. This, of course, comes after he was expelled last week after he and two other Democrats bought a boisterous gun reform protest to the House floor in the wake of the Covenant school shooting in that state. It's an action, not the shooting, but the protest that Republicans said violated the rules. CNN's Ryan Young is in Memphis where the dramatic vote played out. You can't expel hope. Massive celebrations today as the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted to confirm the reappointment of Justin J. Pearson to the Tennessee State House. A city lost last week after he and two other Democrats called for gun reform on the chamber floor. Two of the so-called Tennessee Three, Representative Justin Jones and Representative Justin Pearson, both black, were expelled from their seats. Representative Johnson, who was white, was narrowly spared. Justin Jones was reinstated to the State House Monday after national officials voted to reappoint him. Today, the three of them gathered with hundreds of protesters here in Memphis supporting their expelled colleague as he waited on his vote. We need a multiracial, multigenerational organization in the Tennessee legislature, and these young voices are critical. Starting their march in front of this iconic location in Memphis, Tennessee, the motel where the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Democracy is being threatened. This is not okay. We're What happened was a fascist. A community standing together with the three lawmakers over what is at the center of this whole incident, gun violence and gun control. Even Tennessee's governor now asking Republicans for change. When there is a clear need for action, 
I think that we have an obligation, and I certainly do, to remind people that we should set aside politics and pride and accomplish something that the people of Tennessee want us to get accomplished. Today, one more step towards getting that accomplished for Tennessee with Pearson getting his seat back, a community that now believes he wants to fight for that change. Jake, you've been following this with everybody since last Thursday. That vote happening here, right inside that chamber. Everyone poured out here full of emotion. What happens next, though, the minutes from this building have to be sent now to Nashville. And then tomorrow, the same swearing-in process will happen again on the state capitol steps. And Justin J. Pearson will get his chance to go back into the building that he was expelled from just a week ago. I can tell you the swell of emotions. The hundreds of people that showed up here today, they're hoping that something happens with gun control. They feel what's happening in this country is happening over and over again. And this may be the momentum they need to start that domino effect all over the country. Jake. All right, Ryan Young in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you so much. Let's turn to Republican Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I want to start with the issue of gun reform because Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee as you heard there, is calling on the Republican-led state legislature to take action in the wake of that horrific Nashville school shooting, the Christian School Covenant. Take a listen to some of what Governor Lee had to say. It is important that we find a way uh, to remove individuals who are a threat to themselves or to our society, to remove them from access to weapons. I'm asking the legislature to bring forth thoughtful, practical measures to do that, to strengthen our laws, to separate those dangerous people from firearms. Congressman, what might be a practical measure to separate people from guns uh, that that shouldn't have guns, shouldn't have access to guns because they're in some sort of distress uh, that you might support? Well, Jake, it's good to be with you. This has been a question that's been coming up in various state legislatures. When I was in the Florida legislature, similar question came up. The default position became red flag laws, risk protection orders, or whatever you want to call them. The issue with red flag laws is that the U.S. citizen who somebody thinks might have mental health issues, their property is taken from them, and then they have to go to court to get their property back if it's found out that the mental health claims are actually invalid. Uh, So in short, you're actually violating the constitutional rights of an American citizen, and then they have to prove to the court that their rights should be be reinstated. Uh, That's the issue with red flag laws as they exist today. If you're going to talk about a different situation where you're saying if somebody in, in the family set or in the community set is talking about the mental health issues that exist, and then there is a procedure that goes through to attest to that, to figure that out, you go through a legal procedure around that, and then something's talked about about firearms, that might be palatable. But the way red flag laws operate today violate the rights of American citizens. And at the end of the day, we are a nation of laws. We are a nation by the U.S. Constitution. Constitutional rights have to be protected at all times. So as you noted, um, you voted when you were in the Florida legislature against red flag laws or risk protection orders. Uh, That was in the wake of the Parkland school shooting. Um, That was passed by the Republican-led legislature and signed by Republican Governor then Rick Scott. Um, CNN's Leila Santiago, our reporter in Miami, she interviewed uh, the Polk County Sheriff last year, a a conservative Second Amendment guy. I want you to listen to what the sheriff had to say. Listen, I'm a strong Second Amendment guy. 
I'm a conservative. I believe risk protection orders work. He said they work. We saw, we, Layla went into the courtroom, and we, we saw individuals who had guns taken away from them to, on a temporary basis from the judge because they were in a time of distress. This conservative sheriff says that law saves lives. Look, Grady Judge is a great sheriff in our state, but on the implication about protecting constitutional rights, that's where he and I disagree. Like I said, if there is a process upon which people have to go adjudicate their mental health first before their property is taken, taken away from them, that's one thing. But that's not what risk protection orders do. Risk protection orders take away your property. And then you have to go to court to get your property back. That is a fundamental taking under the United States Constitution. That's why I believe that the actual taking of property is unconstitutional. But that's something where even conservatives disagree. That's no disrespect to Grady Judge. That's my position and that's my way of looking at the U.S. Constitution and the property of people who are citizens in our country who until a tragedy occurs, they actually have not run afoul of the law. And so you have to adjudicate the mental health stuff first before you can go and take property. What about, That's my point. That's my stance. I understand your, your, your point, but what about the constitutional rights of those three nine-year-olds at Covenant School uh, in Nashville or the three faculty and staff members or the uh, six individuals uh, killed, or I'm sorry, five individuals killed uh, at the Louisville Bank? They have a constitutional right to, to life, uh, and you... I understand your concern about the Second Amendment rights of an individual, um, but don't, don't those rights matter less than the individual right to live and not be gunned down in their school? Well, actually, Jake, and I think you're conflating life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is in the Declaration of Independence, not the United States Constitution. We all want to protect life at all times, but that doesn't mean you get to abridge rights of American citizens. You don't get to do that. If you want to go through the legal process and adjudicate mental health, I'm all for that. But you can't take somebody's property from them and then they have to petition a court to get their stuff back. That's the wrong way to go. That's always been my disagreement with red flag laws. It's my disagreement today. And look, for the children who lost their lives in that church, that is horrific. But what you're dealing with there is somebody who knowingly went about breaking the law. And so the law is designed to protect us all. If somebody in an assailant chooses to break the law, that's what the criminal proceeding is for. Right. The Constitution is to protect the, to protect the rights of all law-abiding citizens. Right. But I guess my, my last point here, uh, and, and I understand the difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but certainly uh, the, the right to exist is, is uh, untrammeled from being shot in one's place of work. Uh, or one's place of education is, is fundamental as well. I guess my, my point is, what solution do you propose? This, this uh, kid, this 23-year-old who shot up uh, the, the bank or the other person in their 20s who shot up the Covenant School, um, these were individuals that had not broken any law. They had not done anything to run afoul of the law, but they were people obviously in mental distress I'm not sympathizing with them, but they were in mental distress. What can we do to keep guns out of their hands? Well, look, and that's why I'm saying what I think the key thing is we have to try to find better ways of adjudicating and understanding the mental health uh, capability of, of certain individuals who are falling through the cracks. That's paramount. That's step one. 
Then step two, if you can get that mental health evaluation understood, then you could start talking about whether they should possess firearms or not. That is step two. And I think all we're talking about is which step goes first. You're saying that um, because of the tragedy that has struck, we should just take their property from them first and then figure out the rest on the back end. And all I'm saying is let's figure out the actual mental health issues first and then go through the process of taking away guns if it is adjudicated that, yes, they are a danger to themselves and their community. Right. I'm actually not advocated for one law or another. I was just quoting the Pasco County Sheriff, who you know better than I, who said that that red flag law that you voted against works and saves lives. And I'm just I'm just somebody who's sick. I'm sorry, uh, Polk County, not Pasco County. I'm just someone who's sick and tired of reporting about innocent people being gunned down by people with with mental problems. And obviously not everybody who has a mental problem is a danger to themselves and others. But there needs to be something done. Don't you agree? Well, Jake, I think you said you hit the nail on the head. Not everybody who is dealing with mental health issues is violent. Most of them are not. Most of them are not. The vast majority are not, Jake. If you're an American citizen who's dealing with mental health issues, we all sympathize and empathize. And we want to make sure you get the help that you that you need in order for your life to get back on track. But because that is occurring, that doesn't mean your property should be taken from you. And that is the that's the crux of this issue. Like, I don't really think we're too far apart. All we're saying is, all I'm saying is really is, let's adjudicate the mental health issues. If that is clear and apparent, then we can talk about ways to restrict you from having guns. But don't take an American citizen's property from them, and then they have to go to the court to petition for it back. That doesn't protect their constitutional right, even when the vast majority of people who do have mental health issues are not even contemplating violence whatsoever. I, I've already gone way over and my producers are yelling at me. Uh, Congressman uh, Byron Dog- Donalds of Florida, it's always good to have you on. Thank you so much for the conversation. Anytime. Coming up next, the massive inferno burning right now in Indiana that officials deem toxic. And a major revelation this afternoon from those leaked U.S. intelligence documents showing the Russian mercenary Wagner Group tried to buy weapons from a NATO ally. In our national lead, evacuations are underway in eastern Indiana, where a toxic fire to recycling plant could burn for days, officials say. The smoke plume, absolutely enormous, as you see in this new drone footage, uh, is toxic. And CNN's Omar Jimenez is in Richmond, Indiana. As officials warn that burning plastic and other unknown materials could pose major health risks for Hoosiers. Well, I've always said that place is going to go up in flames one day, and it sure did. This massive fire at a large recycling plant putting out toxic smoke could burn for days. Officials say 14 acres of plastics stored on the property. But with this site especially, it wasn't a matter of if, but when, with city officials aware the operations were a fire hazard. The issue was a un, um, unsafe building and unsafe grounds. And putting the blame squarely on an owner of the recycling plant. That business owner is fully responsible for all of this. We have the unsafe building order and the recorded court documents. And everything that's ensued here, the fire, the damages, uh, the risk that our first responders have taken and the risk these citizens are under are the responsibility of that uh, negligent business owner. An evacuation order is in place for a half-mile radius. Around 2,000 residents ordered to evacuate, including one who lives at the heart of it. I can see from the debris that some of it was on fire and it hit the trees the tree line, and the trees immediately ignited. When she got the evacuation order, she didn't hesitate to leave her home. When they said evacuate, I didn't have shoes on, I had socks on, 
And I left my purse, my shoes. I left a lot of things, personal things, you know, at the house and just got in the car and drove away. For health officials, their key concern now is hazards from the smoke. These are very fine particles, and if they're breathed in, can cause all kinds of respiratory problems. Burning of the eyes, uh, tightening of the chest, it could uh, aggravate asthma, uh, it could cause bronchitis, and all kinds of things. The EPA monitoring particulate matter, looking for toxic chemicals. Residents are being told to stay indoors, but the uncertainty is causing concerns and frustrations. Yeah, it's hard to say what's going into the city air right now. We would like to know that it is safe to be able to breathe the air and to drink the water. Um, so we want to hear from the officials. Now, the previously mentioned owner of the burning property behind me, we've reached out to them. We have not heard back, but you may be able to see crews are still actively working on this property that is smoking pretty heavily behind me, though they have made some progress. There's a big difference from what we saw this morning. The EPA has been on the ground here conducting air quality tests, and the good news is that at least the air quality at the ground level, they have not seen signs of toxins, but obviously that could change, and so they are continuing to test 24-7, as they tell us. All right, Omar Jimenez, stay safe, my friend. Coming up next, images too disturbing for TV, appearing to show Ukrainian soldiers being Beheaded by Russians, the Ukrainian president's outrage as the Kremlin tries to question if the videos are real in this new world of deepfakes. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, horrifying videos appear to show the extent of Russia's battlefield of brutality. Two separate videos surfaced online that appear to show Russians beheading Ukrainian soldiers. And now Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is urging world leaders to do something about this as pro-Russian bloggers celebrate the atrocious videos. One posting, quote, you'd be surprised how many of such videos will gradually emerge, followed by a smiley face. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is in eastern Ukraine for us, where it's believed some of these barbaric acts took place. In a war not short of images of brutality and horror, two videos purporting to show acts of unimaginable barbarism. Too gruesome to air, in this series of still frames, a man wearing military fatigues is seen using a knife to cut off the head of another man in army uniform. The victim is seen wearing a yellow armband, typically worn by Ukrainian soldiers. From the voices on the recording, it seems the victim was still alive as the beheading began. The perpetrator's identity is also hidden, but he is seen wearing a white tie on his leg, a means of identification often worn by Russian fighters. Ukrainian authorities say they are working to uncover where and when the incident might have taken place, as well as trying to establish the victim's identity and that of the other men in the video. This is something that no one in the world can ignore, says President Zelensky. How easily these beasts kill. This video of the execution of a Ukrainian POW, the world must see it. Asked about the video during a daily call with journalists, the Kremlin spokesman acknowledged the footage was terrible, but added a caveat. First of all, said spokesman Dmitry Peskov, in the world of fakes that we inhabit, we need to check the veracity of this footage. 
At about the same time, another video also emerged on social media, this one believed to have been filmed in the last few days, purporting to show the mutilated bodies of two Ukrainian soldiers lying next to a destroyed military vehicle. Voices speaking in Russian claimed the soldiers had had their heads cut off. Images on the video appeared to show the soldiers' hands had also been cut off. Pro-Russian social media posters said the video was shot near Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, scene of the war's fiercest fighting, but CNN is unable to confirm the location. The United Nations said it was appalled by the videos, but 14 months into Russia's full-scale invasion, reiterated these were not isolated incidents. And these are just a few of the videos that have emerged from this war. Recently, there was video of Russian soldiers killing an unarmed Ukrainian soldier who had surrendered. Last summer, there was another video that showed what was clearly a Russian soldier castrating live a Ukrainian soldier. Jake? CNN's Ben Wiedemann in eastern Ukraine with the grisly details. Thank you so much. A steady drip of shocking classified information is coming to light after a trove of secret documents Leaked from the Pentagon, one document shows the private Russian mercenary group, the Wagner Group, trying to buy weapons from an unlikely source, the NATO country, Turkey. Though the intel shows Wagner met with, quote, Turkish contacts, there is no evidence yet that shows Turkey has moved forward with any arms sales to the Russian mercenary group. Joining us now, former Trump administration national security advisor and retired Army Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He's also the author of Battlegrounds, the fight to defend the free world. General, good to see you. What might the long-term damage be, do you think, to U.S. intelligence collection and to U.S. allies and anything else because of this massive leak? Well, Jake, the long-term damage is really reputational. I think there, there are really four categories of damage tactical, right, information that maybe Russia could use to its advantage, for example. I think you can remedy that pretty quickly. You can reposition, uh, you know, reposition assets. You can change plans for the for the, the coming offensive, for example. Then there are sources and methods. That's quite serious as well. You, you, you hope that, 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 that these documents don't allow adversaries to, to shut down sources, uh, maybe threaten uh, human intelligence sources, or, uh, or to understand better methods so they can hide from you their uh, their intentions or the information, the intelligence you're trying to develop. Um, but the reputational damage, you know, especially maybe uh, what you've seen in connection with the, with the, with the South Korea uh, deliberations, I think it takes time to build that trust back. And then what you've seen already are, are these some crude attempts to manipulate the information. So there's informational or information operations risk. And mm-hmm. I think what has to happen now, you know, obviously an investigation to find out who did it, to hold that person or those people accountable, that will help restore a degree of confidence, uh, and then and then understand how it happened, and and to put procedures in place involving, you know, right of least privilege, for example, in terms of of controlling uh, sensitive information, uh, but but also you know it's it's going to have to be a sustained diplomatic effort that's already ongoing, I'm sure, yeah. to assure our allies and to mitigate the damage. So the documents show an unmistakable urgency for Ukraine. They need more weapons, heavier weapons. Today, the Ukrainian Prime Minister pleaded with Secretary of Defense Austin for F-16 fighter jets. Do you think it's something that the U.S. should provide, F-16 fighter jets? You know, Jake, rather than even talk about specific capabilities, how about just some clarity and objectives as we see these this horrible 
you know, this horrible news of beheadings and other forms of abuse. We know right, that, that, that Russia has been conducting war crimes. Uh, we know that we know that Vladimir Putin's been indicted by the International Criminal Court for the mass kidnapping of of children. So how about some clarity? Like what do what would what do we want to help Ukraine achieve? And I think really it's it's Ukraine has to have the capability to regain all of the territory annexed illegally or taken since 2014, because that's what's necessary to convince Vladimir Putin that he's been defeated. Any talk of these off ramps or uh, or meeting out of incremental assistance uh, based on fears of escalation, I think any off ramp for Putin, it's just a chance to look for another on ramp. So I think if there are clear objectives, hey, how about stopping or giving helping the Ukraines stop uh, Russia's ability to commit mass murder of their of their population or to attack their critical infrastructure? Remember, they tried to freeze people to death. Uh, this winter. And mm. that's a range of military capabilities, Jake. You know, it's that's that's air defense capabilities. It's it's long range surveillance capabilities, long range precision strike. But then, hey, option, you know, you know, objective two militarily ought to be to help the Ukrainians develop the capability and the capacity, right? The the size and depth of a force to mm. have a sustained counteroffensive. And this is, of course, what everybody's talking about is the subject in some of these leaked documents. And that's another range of capabilities, including offensive air uh, in the form of F-16s, but again, long-range precision fires, protected mobility, mobile protected firepower, tanks, yeah. engineering capabilities to, to, to get across gaps. So you get the idea. It's just, it's a range of capabilities that have to be integrated into capable joint uh, formations. I want to get your thoughts uh, while you're here on the Biden administration's recent uh, after-action report memo on the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, including a lessons learned. There was not an accountability uh, memo. Nobody has been uh, blamed. Um, a lot of people, a lot of observers say that the memos just sought to absolve Biden of responsibility, blaming Trump. Uh, here's how one Boston Globe columnist put it, quote, the chaos that accompanied the hasty retreat uh, with scenes of desperation so eerily similar to the fall of Saigon in 75 conveyed a global message of American weakness, a message Vladimir Putin undoubtedly read as a green light to invade Ukraine Six months later, that's from uh, Jeff Jacoby, a conservative columnist for The Globe. Um, the withdrawal itself uh, undoubtedly is going to be a stain on Biden's legacy. But, but what do you make of that specific argument that the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the way it was done, gave Putin a green light to invade Ukraine? Do you believe that's true? I do believe it's true. You know, deterrence is capability times will. And after the disaster the, the horrors that we witnessed on, on the on the, the really a surrender to a terrorist organization, Jake. We ought to call it what it is. It was a surrender to a terrorist organization uh, and a disastrous uh, retreat. Uh, I, I think that Vladimir Putin concluded, and so did Xi Jinping, that our will is zero. I mean, take a look at the timing of the essay that Vladimir Putin wrote in August of 2020, the same time as this disaster was unfolding uh, in in uh, in Afghanistan. Take a look at the joint statement, right, between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin before the Beijing Olympics. You know what the message there was? Hey, you're over, United States. You're over, Western democratic world. It's our turn to, to establish this new, you know, the, this new era of international relations. And, and so I, I think there was a, a geostrategic, huge, you know, huge downs, you know, huge uh, consequence, negative consequence. But also, how about the jihadist terrorist consequence, yeah. Jake? You know, what did we hear? What did they tell us across, you know, two administrations? They said, oh, there's a bold line, you know, between the Taliban and and, and, uh, and other jihadist terrorist organizations. 
oh, but and then I'm an Zawahiri's there, the, the the leader of Al Qaeda, right? And we know that these groups are intertwined, uh, and then of course this humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, I, I it really turns my stomach when I hear you know people crying, you're seeing these crocodile tears about women's rights, and and we consigned the Afghan women to hell, yeah, uh, by not only surrendering to a terrorist organization, Jake, but I think toward the end there we actually partnered with the Taliban against the Afghan security forces and the government, delivering psychological blow after psychological blow to them. And I know, just for anybody watching, I know you were also very critical of the uh, Trump administration, which you had left at that point, uh, negotiating uh, with the Taliban in, in Doha, just for anyone out there who thinks you're only blaming oh, abso- Biden. You've, you've been blaming abso- both of them. No, I know. I have to go, though, but I just wanted to make sure people knew that. Retired Army General H.R. Uh, McMaster, thanks so much, sir. Good to see you, as always. Coming up next, defending his case, I'm going to talk to the district attorney of Travis County, Texas, as Governor Greg Abbott pushes for a pardon just days after a man's murder conviction. Stay with us. And our national lead attorneys for convicted Sergeant Daniel Perry are pushing for a new trial. At the same time, the Texas Governor Greg Abbott vows that he will pardon Mr. Perry. On Friday, a jury found Perry guilty of shooting and killing Garrett Foster during a Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. Both Perry and Foster are white. The Travis County District Attorney says that he's confident in the guilty verdict that has already been reached by a jury. That District Attorney, Jose Garza, joins us now. Uh, uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, District Attorney uh, Garza. Um, I want to get to the pardon request in a moment, but first, the request for a new trial. Perry's attorneys say that they were blocked from uh, using evidence suggesting that Garrett Foster, the victim, allegedly instigated confrontations and was harassing people the night of the shooting. Uh, what's your response to that claim? Well, I think that's an uh, incredibly appropriate and common um, argument and motion for them to make. It's appropriate for them to request uh, a new trial. And it's just um, evidence that there are so many safeguards in place uh, for people accused of crimes. And I'm glad that they're taking advantage of those safeguards. We remain confident in the jury verdict um, and we will await the, the judge's decision. So the statement from Governor Abbott vowing that he will pardon Sergeant Perry seems to suggest he thinks Perry's innocent based on Texas's stand your ground law, uh, because uh, both Perry and the victim uh, had guns uh, that night. What what do you make of that claim? Well, that really wasn't the issue um, in trial. Uh, And it's, again, pretty clear that the the governor didn't uh, watch the trial, didn't have any of his staff watch the trial. And so the issue at trial was whether or not um, the defendant in this case instigated this conflict. And under Texas law, you are not allowed to avail yourself of um, the self-defense if you initiate a conflict. The jury had the opportunity to hear his defense and to hear evidence that he initiated the conflict um, and ultimately determined that that's what he did. Why do you think Governor Perry is pushing uh, for this pardon? You know, I don't know what's in the in the governor's mind. Um, you know, I don't watch Fox News often. Um, I presume the governor does. Um, and it sounds like that's the direction he received from that network. Um, but, but you know, I, I can't be sure what he's thinking. This has become something of a conservative cause celeb. They think that the conviction was unfair because you have a right to defend yourself. And obviously they depict all Black Lives Matter protesters uh, as uh, hoodlums, as instigators and such. Um, you don't buy that, though. 
Well, again, there was a, a, a jury trial in this case. Um, the jury sat and listened to evidence for over a week. They had an opportunity to hear all of the evidence that the defense put forward. They had an opportunity to hear evidence from the state. And at the end of the day, um, after deliberating um, for over 15 hours, they determined that um, the defendant instigated this conflict and is guilty of murder. District Attorney Jose Garza, thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Coming up, a judge's scathing ruling today against Fox just one day before trial begins in a billion dollar, well, really $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. Stay with us. One day before jury selection, the judge hearing the $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox is sanctioning that company's lawyers, accusing the lawyers of withholding evidence and accusing the lawyers of not telling the court the truth. This in the case where Fox is accused of lying to its audience. Let's bring in CNN's Oliver Darcy. Um, What evidence or, or lack thereof is the network accused of withholding from the court, Oliver? Yeah, Jake, more bad news for Fox on the eve of jury selection in this $1.6 billion case. Uh, This is as it relates to Rupert Murdoch and his role at Fox News. Uh, Fox lawyers had obviously disclosed that Murdoch is the chair of Fox Corporation, the parent company of Fox News, but they hadn't disclosed to the court in the case that he's also an officer on Fox News' board. This infuriating the judge, uh, saying that he can no longer really trust what's coming out of Fox, and he's now appointed a special master to investigate whether Fox uh, withheld key evidence in the trial and whether it lied to the court. Not something, Jake, you want to see on the eve of a trial. I want to read to you some of the comments the judge made. He said, I am very concerned. There has been misrepresentations to the court. He says, this is very serious. I am very uncomfortable right now. Those are the comments that the judge was making to Fox's attorneys on the eve of jury selection. So not how Fox probably wants to get started. And it really shows the judge's exasperation for the network that has been building for some time during these hearings where he's just fed up with uh, the right wing channels antics, Jake. As my grandfather used to say, what to expect from a pig but a grunt. Oliver Darcy, thank you so much. Coming up next, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir in his first TV interview since the Louisville bank shooting took the life of his friend, plus new 911 calls from that horrific attack. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a dire warning about fentanyl laced with an animal tranquilizer known as Trank. For the first time in history, the White House is declaring this to be an emerging threat, the lethal combo that rots people's skin, now appearing in all 50 states. Plus, CNN digs up an old college newspaper op-ed by the House Democratic leader defending his anti-Semitic relative, Hakeem Jeffries. Probably wish this stayed in the past. And... Leading this hour, you can feel the horror and fear as they plead for help while the gunman terrorizes the Louisville bank. Police releasing the 911 calls today from that deadly bank shooting, including a call from the shooter's mother, who is confused and asking police to not punish her son. I want to warn viewers that these 911 calls can be upsetting to hear. One woman calling 911 while hiding in a closet at the bank survived, but several of her colleagues did not. Has anybody been shot? Yes. How many people? I don't know. Probably eight or nine. Eight or nine people have been shot? Uh Uh-huh. 
Are you with any of them? Yes, but I'm in a closet hiding. CNN's Adrian Broda starts off our coverage from Louisville, where a vigil to honor the victims is getting underway. How do you know you have an active shooter on the site? I just watched you it, watch it on a meeting. On a team's meeting? Yes, we were having a board meeting. Hey, did you see the suspect? Oh, yes. Tonight, we're hearing dramatic 911 calls from Monday's mass shooting in Louisville that killed five bank employees, including one call from the mother of the gunman. Yes, my, um, I, my, my son might be having have a gun and he's heading toward the Old National at uh, on Main Street here in Louisville. Main Street, Old National? Yes, and I, this is his mother. I'm so sorry. I'm getting details secondhand. I'm running to it now. Oh, my Lord. Okay. And what exactly is going on with him? Why, what, it, what is he saying he's doing? I, I don't know. I'm getting this information from the roommate. He apparently left a note. He, he's never heard me once. He's a really good kid. Please don't come up to him. His roommate called me. His roommate's very concerned. Please, he, he's not violent. Mm-hmm. He's never done anything. Please. Okay. And you don't believe he owns guns? I know he doesn't own any guns. In another call, you can hear a woman inside the bank talking to a 911 operator. Can you uh, see the person? Are you able to give me a description? I, I know who it is. He's probably six feet tall. He's young, a young male. How do you know the person? He works with us. The release of the calls comes one day after police released body camera footage from the first two officers who responded to the scene. Back up, back up, back up, back up. Rookie officer Nicholas Wilt and his training officer, Corey Galloway, started taking incoming fire immediately after they arrived on scene. This is when both officers are hit. Shortly after, more officers arrive on scene. God damn it! Moments later, Officer Galloway and the gunman exchange more fire. The gunman is killed. I think I got him down. I think he's down. The family of the shooter says the 25-year-old struggled with depression, but his family had no idea he was planning an attack. In a statement to CNN affiliate WDRB, the family says, quote, No words can express our sorrow, anguish, and horror at the unthinkable harm our son Connor inflicted on innocent people, their families, and the entire Louisville community. Investigators are still trying to figure out what Sturgeon's motive was. We know he was employed by the bank at the time of the shooting. Police say he bought the AR-15-style weapon used in the attack on April 4th, legally from a local shop. This as we learn more about Sturgeon, a former classmate telling CNN he was a varsity athlete in high school and played basketball and ran track saying, quote, I never in a million years would expect him to be capable of such a monstrous act. Three people remain in the hospital, including Officer Wilt, who had brain surgery. He's in critical condition. And tonight, here in Louisville, members of the community have already gathered. Hundreds are here to honor and remember the five people who died in that shooting on Monday. And even though we heard those 911 calls, we didn't see, obviously, the callers, but it was easy to hear in their voices that they were terrified. One caller 
hiding in a closet, barely spoke above a whisper. And after tonight's vigil, at least 20 churches will gather in prayer for what they call a night of resilience. Jake. All right, Adrian Broadus in Louisville, Kentucky for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. John, I wonder um, what stood out to you the most as you listened to these calls, uh, especially the one from the gunman's mother saying that her son is not violent, a good kid. He doesn't even own any guns. Well, what stood out from the calls was two or three things. One, you know, the 911 call takers went by the book. You know, they gathered information, but they dispatched the call while they were getting that information. Um, the first call you hear, the one where the lady is actually watching the shooting on a Zoom connection from another location, after they sort out the confusion that here's where the shooting is happening, that's where police need to go, but that's not where I am, she tells us something important. It was a board meeting, she says, which really suggests a regularly scheduled meeting that the shooter, as an employee of the bank, um, would have or could have known about. Um, it tells us he may have been targeting that meeting on that day at that time because he knew he would find senior leadership from the bank, including Tommy Elliott, the executive vice president in one place. The mom's call you bring up is also very interesting because what she tells us is not what she knows, but what she doesn't know. My son isn't violent. He's ne he doesn't have a gun. He's never had a gun, she says, which suggests that the family is totally aware that he is going through this emotional downturn, becoming more unhinged, and that he's already purchased a weapon, something he's kept secret because this is going to be his surprise attack. Yeah. Tom Miller, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Moments ago, Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, a Democrat, sat down for an exclusive interview with CNN's Caitlin Collins, where he reacted to those heartbreaking 911 calls, and he remembered, remembered his good friend, uh, Tommy Elliott, who John just mentioned, who, one of the victims who tragically uh, was killed. The police department has also released today that 911 audio that they got of the many calls that people place. One of them is from the shooter's mother, who calls to say that her son's roommate has called to say he has a gun and he's headed toward the old National Bank. Just to hear something like that, to see the mom calling, what's that like? You know, this, this person murdered my friend. But still, I can't imagine how his parents must be feeling right now. This is difficult for you to talk about, I can tell. Yes. And your friend is Tommy Elliott. What do you want people to remember about him? You talk about what a, what a good friend he was and a great dad. Man, he had a great smile. His uh, eyes lit up uh, when he did it. Uh, uh, loved life. Uh, was always into something. Um, you know, trying to make the city a better place. Trying to make uh, University of Louisville a better place. Trying to he just always into to, to something. I mean, heck, he was he was trying to plan for me for when I'm done being governor, um, which was something I hoped that we could eventually. Uh, Plan together, but um, amazing human being, a loving uh, uh, dad. And you can see all of Caitlin Collins' exclusive interview with Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir at 9 p.m. Eastern tonight, only on CNN.
Joining us now to discuss is Jillian Peterson, the co-founder of The Violence Project, which is a nonprofit research center that studies gun violence. She is also the co-author of The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Uh, Jillian, thanks for joining us. We just heard parts of the 911 call, including from the shooter's mom. As part of your research, you spoke to both perpetrators who have carried out mass shootings and the people around the perpetrators. What did you learn from that? You know, a lot of what I heard in that 911 call reminded me of other mothers of perpetrators that I've interviewed and spoken to. I think a common thread is that families know something is wrong. They're concerned about their son, but they never think it's this is what's wrong. They never think their son is planning a mass shooting, but they certainly see warning signs around things like depression, suicidality, changes in behavior, and they may not know who to reach out to for help. And as we discussed with Congressman uh, Donalds uh, earlier, we need to emphasize uh, most people who, who experience uh, mental health issues are not homicidal, are not suicidal, uh, pose no danger to themselves and to others. Is there a way to figure out who are the ones that we need to worry about when it comes to violence? It's such a difficult question. So we've studied about 200 of these perpetrators, including interviewing several of them incarcerated, and we see a common pathway to violence. So we see things like early childhood trauma, a crisis point, suicidality, studying and becoming fascinated with other mass shooters and grievance with the world, access to guns, and then the planning of the shooting, which is ultimately kind of an angry suicide meant for us to watch and witness. There's no checklist where I could say, here's the things that make somebody a mass shooter. It's too hard to do that. What we do know is that mass shooters leak their plans. They tell other people. Oftentimes, they're expressing suicidal thoughts to friends or family. And that is our critical moment of intervention, not because they have a mental illness. We know that so many people have mental illnesses. It does not make you dangerous. But that's just one piece of a complicated story. How common are mass shootings uh, in the workplace? Workplace is actually a fairly common place for mass shootings to occur. We saw a spike of workplace mass shootings more so in sort of the 80s and the 90s. They faded away and we've had more school and retail establishment um, shootings, but we still see them. And when there is a workplace shooting, it's an employee who works there oftentimes an employee who's recently been reprimanded or getting fired. Do you think that red flag laws work? Is there evidence, is there data that they keep guns out of the hands of individuals uh, who would use them to harm others or themselves? You know, our research shows that over 80% of mass shooters are in a noticeable crisis before the shooting happens. They're telling other people about their plans. They're leaking their intent. And so anything that we can do to keep guns out of the hands that people, of people who are saying to us, I am thinking about hurting myself and others, that's going to be beneficial. There is some evidence to show that they are effective, especially when it comes to suicide. It's harder to know when you've prevented a mass shooting But certainly we know that people are communicating their plans, they're communicating their crisis, and red flag laws would be one way to stop them from carrying it out. In your book, you wrote about more than 30 prevention strategies that you believe could reduce mass mass shootings. Um, 
we don't have time to get into all 30, but what do you think it, it would make the biggest difference? For me, one of the keys here is actually suicide prevention. These are suicides. We saw the perpetrator who did this shooting sit down and wait for the police to show up so that he could go out in a shootout with them. And so if you want to be alive, you're not going to do something like this. So I think thinking about suicidality, about crisis intervention, and then at the same time, how do we make it harder for people who are feeling that way to access firearms. And there's a lot of different ways we can do that from red flag laws to even things like safe storage. All right, Jillian Peterson, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. At any moment, the Fifth Circuit uh, Federal Court uh, Appeals Court could uh, issue a ruling on one of the drugs used in uh, medication abortion where that court battle will head is next. Plus, as the cost of housing skyrockets, people are kicked out of their homes at a troubling rate, leaving more Americans without a place to live. And our politics lead, will access to the abortion medication mifepristone be restricted, essentially banned, starting Friday? At any moment, we could learn the answer as an appeals court will decide whether to leave in place a ruling from a Texas judge that would suspend the drug's FDA approval, which has been around for decades at the end of this week. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic is here to discuss. Uh, Joan, tell us what could happen next as we await this appeals court ruling. Yeah, this is a very tense waiting period. The Department of Justice has made its case to the Fifth Circuit and asked the court to decide by noon Thursday, just in case they have to go all the way to the Supreme Court for a temporary reprieve. The question is going to be, which side will the Fifth listen to? The Department of Justice and the drug manufacturer Danko that says that that order will just completely upend not just a uh, medication abortion access, but healthcare and drug screening, because this judge put himself in the shoes of the FDA, which normally would have the expertise to decide if something's safe and effective. Uh, they've got, uh, as I said, all the filings are in. And this issue, just so our audience knows, is not about abortion at this point. It's about whether there'll be a temporary pause on this litigation so that then there could be thoughtful consideration on a part of an appellate court as to which side is right on the merits. But this case is likely to go to the Supreme Court, right? No matter who wins in the appeals court, uh, it's, it's going to be appealed. One way or another, it will go. It will either go for this temporary stay of the litigation at this point, it, if the Fifth Circuit doesn't do that itself over the next 24 hours, but it will likely eventually, when all the appeals play out, go up there on the merits. But the one thing I want to remind people about is this is not like what happened back in June when the justices by that narrow 5-4 vote, reversed all constitutional abortion rights nationwide. This has to do with the authority of a federal agency, the Food and Drug Administration, and who gets to challenge those the scientific determinations about drugs that are safe and effective and when they can do it. Yeah, so you mentioned the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Justice Kavanaugh wrote in his concurring opinion, quote, To be clear, the court's decision today does not outlaw abortion throughout the United States. On the contrary, the court's decision properly leaves the question of abortion for the people and their elected representatives in the democratic process. Look, nobody demands consistency from Supreme Court justices, but could he make that argument last year and then this year say, ah, it's fine for this judge to do whatever he wants and have it affect the entire United States? That's right, the entire United States. That's why this is such a different case, and I actually think it could have the reverse outcome when the justices finally take it up. That's, the, the court, not just Justice Kavanaugh, but the majority also said this is going back to the states. 
we're no longer going to be in the business of moral judgments, policy judgments. And if you're going to say that you're not outlawing abortion nationwide, then what do you do? What do you say to the states that right now make it legal? And most of the most of the women in their states use this method, this two two pill uh, medication abortion method to end their pregnancies. If this if this drug is removed from the market and no longer can uh, women no longer can have access to it, you are effectively outlawing abortion. Yeah. Joan Biskupic, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the old college newspaper op-ed that House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries probably would rather CNN had not found. Stay with us. Newly uncovered material from House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, contradicts his repeated previous denials that he was only vaguely aware that his uncle in the 1990s was spreading anti-Semitic filth. Uh, Leonard Jeffries uh, is his uncle. He was then a college professor at City University of New York, and he was facing backlash for falsely blaming, quote, rich Jews for financing the slave trade and for saying that Jews in Hollywood were engaged in a conspiracy to denigrate black people in film. So this is a big story back in the 80s. Um, Jeffries has said, in the past, that since he was in college and it was the pre-internet era and his parents hid the controversy from both him and his brother, that he did not know much about the uproar. But CNN's K-File found that Jeffries was more than well aware of the controversy surrounding his uncle. He wrote a college editorial in his college paper supporting his uncle, inviting his uncle to speak on campus amid this furor. And he also defended noted bigot Louis Farrakhan from the Nation of Islam. Andrew Kaczynski of the CNN's K-File team joins us now. Andrew, tell us what you found. Yeah, that's right. So Jeffries uh, and the Black Student Union uh, invited his uncle to speak on campus following uh, the controversy. After this was protested by Jewish student groups, Jeffries actually led a press conference uh, defending his uncle on campus, and he wrote an editorial in which he defended him uh, and Louis Farrakhan, writing, uh, Dr. Leonard Jeffries and Minister Louis Farrakhan have come under intense fire. Where do you think their interests lie? Dr. Jeffries has challenged the existing white supremacist educational system and long-standing, long-standing distortion of history. His reward has been a media lynching complete with character assassination and inflammatory, erroneous accusations. So that was then. Uh, fast forward to 2013. He's first running for Congress. Uh, he gets asked uh, about his uncle. This is actually after he got elected. Uh, it's 2013. He was elected in 2012. Uh, and, and look at what he told uh, The Wall Street Journal. Uh, He says, when a lot of this controversy took place, my brother and I were away at school. There was no Internet during that era. I can't even recall uh, uh, the Daily Binghamton, New York area newspaper, but it wasn't covering the things that the New York Post uh, and Daily News were uh, at the time. So obviously, we know we see him hosting a press conference. We see him writing an editorial defending him. We look at those Wall Street Journal quotes. We can see that that is obviously uh, severely undermines Jeffrey's claims that he told the Wall Street Journal. He's also made uh, similar claims over the years, recently in 2019. And, and he does often like to point back to that Wall Street Journal interview when he does get questions uh, about his uncle. Right. So this is 31 years ago, but the denials are not 31 years ago. Uh, you reached out to Jeffrey's office. He's the Democratic leader of the House. H- how are they responding? 
So we reached out to them. We asked them, you know, does he see uh, any inconsistencies between the, the comments in 2013, the actual history there? Uh, they didn't answer those questions for us. They did give us a statement that said, Leader Jeffries has been consistently clear that he does not share the controversial views espoused by his uncle over 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, Andrew Kaczynski with K-File. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's discuss. So, look, I, w- I, don't, I would not want to be judged by anything I thought in, in uh, college. Uh, and I'm roughly the same age as uh, Leader Jeffries. But, um, you know, full disclosure, get it all out. Get it all out early on your own terms. Tell the truth. Right. But he's then going to have to explain and go in over again what his uncle said at the time, which was hugely anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know, calling Jews dogs and the rest. This was, yeah, so, this was the early 90s. This was a big story yes, at the time. It was, a, it was a big story. And I think, look, he hid behind saying, and it's understandable, his parents tried to shield him from it, et cetera, et cetera. I think at a certain point, though, you have to say, look, um, I was young and I should have denounced it then. And I denounce it now. I don't see how difficult that would be. What do you think? Well, I think to that point, yes. And also, like, if we look at his record, Jeffrey's record, right? Like he has been a champion for his constituents, which he represents the, I believe it's the ninth largest population of black uh, citizens in his district and the 14th largest for Jewish citizens, right? And so I think the office is probably trying to let their record speak um, while he is, he may be saying, look, let me figure out what else I don't remember because I don't remember what I said in college so that there's no more of this so that we can get in front of it so that we can have, we, we can address it and we can talk about the work that we are doing for these communities at this time. This should be a teachable moment, not just for Jeffries, but House Republicans and House Democrats. You know, we've seen a rise, as we know, not just in um, anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, but obviously violence and uh, graffiti put on people's houses. This is an opportunity, I think, for Jeffries to address what he wrote in the past, what his uncle has said, and use that to move forward. We see so often uh, words and symbols of bigotry being used Anytime that we have the opportunity to kind of repel them, uh, we should seize that. Yeah, the Republican campaign committee, the NRCC, is already seizing on the K-File story, slamming Jeffries for referring to black conservatives back in that op-ed in 1992 as tokens and opportunists, and you'll forgive me for saying house Negroes is a term that he he, he used. So he is going to have to address this. Uh, It's something that, yes, it looks like his office is coming out pretty forcefully already and trying to respond to uh, this coming up again. I mean, look, I I used to work for my campus newspaper. People, you know, would (laughs) write things in there. A lot of us did. A lot of people wrote things in there that 30 years down the line they might look on a bit differently. And that, you know, seems to be somewhat of the case here. At the same time, uh, the interesting thing with the NRCC is this is where we see Republicans trying to sharpen lines of attack against Jeffries, since you know they've been able to use Speaker Pelosi's former Speaker Pelosi as a foil for quite some time, and now they have a relatively uh, someone who's more of an unknown quantity to a lot of Republicans. Yeah, I think he has an opportunity here, but yeah. we'll, we'll see what he does. But uh, another uh, interesting thing in Democratic politics today, just moments ago, uh, there's this uh, bubbling up controversy about the fact that Senator Dianne Feinstein who's old and obviously not at 100% of her mental capacity uh, and was hospitalized on March 2nd of this year, I think, with shingles. Uh, She's not running for re-election. She's up for re-election. She's not running. Um, But she's not present. And she's missing a lot of votes. She's on the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's causing a lot of problems. They can't get their judges. The Democrats can't get their judges confirmed. Just moments ago, Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California called on Feinstein uh, to resign. 
He tweeted, it's time for Senator Feinstein to resign. We need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. While she has had a lifetime of public service, it's obvious she can no longer fulfill her duties. Not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives uh, of the people. Do you agree? Well, I think there's a conversation right now that we're trying to have of, of getting some actual work done with this very slim majority. And, you know, we know that he is one of the co-chairs of Barbara Lee's campaign. She's running to replace She's Feinstein, to right? Replace yeah. Feinstein. And there has been some conversation about the disappointment that a black woman wasn't appointed to sen- former Senator Kamala Harris's seat when she became vice president. And so I think there's more than just the Feinstein piece. It's also like who will get that seat, as well as can we actually get some work done, particularly around these uh, judicial appointments, because we see what's happening in the courts Well, right it's, a, it's a block. When you miss more than 50 votes, I think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And when your, your presence is needed for judicial nominees to get confirmed, I think it's a problem. And I think... Why doesn't Schumer just take her off the Judiciary Committee? Well, remember, she that? was supposed to be chairman at one point, and that didn't happen. I, I guess he could. He, I guess he could ask her... Uh, but he's a senator. You know, Ro Khanna, I was just going to say this. Ro Khanna is a House member, not a senator. And it would be more likely that a House member would do this, correct me if I'm wrong, than a senator would do this to a, to a fellow colleague and say she ought to leave. Do you think there's a, a, a deference too much to people in, in Congress who are unable to carry out their duties because of illness of one kind or another? As opposed to a deference to the American people that they represent? There's a deference too much to members of Congress, period. Stop the sentence. And we see that in Washington, D.C. every day. Senate in particular. And we can talk about what maybe could happen or should happen, but the reality is Strom Thurmond couldn't do his job in the final days. Like the last decade of his, yes. Not just the final days. Sad Sad Cochran um, from Mississippi couldn't do his job. And we see this time and time again. And the reality is it's, it's the seat of the people. When you go to their office, it says... Uh, the congressional district. It says the Senate seat. It's not just that member's seat. They don't own it. But the reality is, for all intents and purposes, George Santos isn't going anywhere. Why? Because he has a two-year unshakable contract unless he decides to go or two-thirds of his colleagues kick him out. One of the unspoken things, and I'm not saying this is this applies to Feinstein, but but a lot of times somebody will become infirm or not all there, and the family and the staff don't want them to resign because then they don't have a job and they don't get goodies and they don't get invited to all these cool events. I mean, there's an incentive structure for people in Washington to hide the illness. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's part of a broader national conversation here about how exactly we, we talk about age and how it relates to our elected officials. California is the largest state. You know, we have a senator who has been absent for some time, which is raising a lot of questions among Democrats I've talked to about whether she'll even come back. Um, and I think that's the, the question here. Well, you know, we have two septuagenarians uh, running for president, uh, potentially. <laughs> and uh, I'm know. sorry, but one of them is an octogenarian. Uh, well, right. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Oops, I forgot. That's he had right. a birthday in so December. He did have that birthday, right? So, I, you know, I think age is is an issue that not only the Senate has to grapple with, but when you think in terms of the presidency. So uh, we are there is a new generation of people running for president, younger people. Uh, Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, speaking of Strom Thurmond, mm-hmm. uh, launched a presidential exploratory committee today. Here's a little bit of his launch video. I know America is a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. I know it because I've lived it. That's why it pains my soul to see the Biden liberals attacking every rung of the ladder that helped me climb. I bear witness that America can do for anyone 
what she's done for me. But we must rise up to the challenges of our time. This is a fight we must win. Is there a lane for Senator Tim Scott uh, in a Republican presidential primary? There is. What we see shaping up right now is it looks to be Donald Trump versus probably Ron DeSantis. If they beat each other up, if a Republican's willing to stand up to Donald Trump and that happens, there's an opportunity and it could be Tim Scott. Tim Scott is the most popular Republican I've ever met. Every Republican likes him. When he got promoted from the House to the Senate, I was in House leadership, we were sad to see him go. Republicans, members, and staff all love Tim Scott. All right, thanks to one and all for being here. Coming up, the dire new warning from the White House about a popular street drug that is dangerous enough, but now it's also being mixed with a dangerous animal tranquilizer. Stay with us. In our health lead now, recent high-profile deaths illustrate that the growing fentanyl crisis spares no one. Medical reports show the highly powerful opioid fentanyl played a role in the deaths of both Coolio, the rapper, and Green Book actor Frank Vallelonga Jr. Just last week, a man charged in the fentanyl overdose death of The Wire actor-producer Michael K. Williams pleaded guilty to drug distribution charges for that 2021 death. Today, even more troubling news as the Biden administration issued a strong warning about the dangers of fentanyl, dangerous enough on its own, laced with xylazine. That's an animal tranquilizer, also known as Trank. This is the first time in history any U.S. administration has declared a substance to be an emerging threat. CNN's Ellie Reeve visited Philadelphia, where, sadly, fentanyl laced with Trank has become all too common on the streets. Trank was found in over 90% of the dope samples tested in Philadelphia, and it's spreading to other cities on the East Coast. In 2021, it was detected in 34% of overdose deaths in Philadelphia. Users did not want xylazine, but now they're addicted to it. Okay, so someone told me you're a real OG out here. What does that mean? (laughs) Original gangster, okay. Um, Yeah, I've been out here for a long time. I... A lot of people know me out here. <laughs> so, like, you've been here when, like, Trank started being in the supply, right? Absolutely, yeah. I've seen the whole transition go from real heroin to Trank and Fetty. And it really, it really changed a lot of people's habits, lifestyles. Xylazine is a powerful sedative not approved for use in humans. It can cause users to be motionless for hours, even days. It knocked elephants out with it. Yeah. So that's why you see everybody on you know? It also causes skin wounds that won't heal, and that can become necrotic. Doctors don't yet know why. It removes seven pounds of flesh and a liter and a half of pus. It's been open for 21 months. That's how horrible this trying shit is. It doesn't let your body heal. It's killing us. Slow but sure it's killing us. Some of us are earlier than others, but it's eventually going to kill you if you keep going. And I see it every day. Death. Every day, right next to you. This has made it really difficult for patients to get into recovery. You know, they're so fearful of the withdrawal. They're fearful that the doctors and nurses don't know what xylazine is. Xylazine withdrawal lasts longer than opioid withdrawal, and it can cause intense anxiety. Doctors don't know the best way to treat it, and they're trying different drugs to see what works. But Dorazio warns that cracking down on Trank will just push dealers to introduce other, more dangerous drugs. He says what will help is making it easier for users to get health care. But how do you do that? How do you make the access to care better? 
better medication, so better ability to manage withdrawal, creating more housing access. Housing is a major issue in our community, and I think that's something that we're not concentrating on is the prevention of this disorder. And what would that be, more mental health care? Yes, absolutely. The same reason that that mom on the main line reaches for a martini glass at noon is the same reason that I reached for a rig and put a needle in my neck. I was in pain. That's it. I was hurting. The people that are out here numbing their pain with substances, whether it's heroin, alcohol, cocaine, we need to address the pain. We need to stop isolating the substance and look beyond it. Very powerful. CNN's Ellie Reeve is with us now. Uh, and I know uh, the fentanyl crisis in Philly is a big issue in the mayor's race there. Um, so, Ellie, uh, harm reduction workers, people who help drug users focus on positive change, they've been sounding the alarm about this threat for years, you say. Yeah, Sarah Laurel, the last woman interviewed in our piece, noticed about three years ago that her friends were getting these weird wounds. But there was no information about what was going on. So she started reading medical journals, even veterinary journals. Another thing she noticed was that Narcan wasn't working as well. And that's because while Narcan can reverse the effects of an opioid, it doesn't work on Trank. So now her harm reduction group, Savage Sisters, is carrying oxygen tanks. They've been screaming at the top of their lungs for years, but now people are starting to listen. Yeah, and the Biden administration just declared uh, this an emerging threat. What does that mean? So that means there's 90 days to develop a a plan to address the issue. Then the federal agencies figure out their part of the issue and how they can deal with Trank. It doesn't necessarily come with federal funding, but the Office of National Drug Control Policy is asking Congress for it. All right, Ellie Reeve, a very important report. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. Thank you. In the world, lead two new disturbing videos that appear to show Ukrainian soldiers being beheaded by Russians in just a few minutes. CNN's Wolf Blitzer will be covering this intensely in the Situation Room. And Wolf, uh, as you know, uh, these videos are now part of a war crimes investigation. They certainly are. And we'll discuss those gruesome beheading videos, Jake, and much more with the visiting Ukrainian prime minister when he joins us live here in the Situation Room for an exclusive interview. The Kyiv government, as you know, has opened a formal investigation, and President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling the perpetrators beasts. We'll see if the prime minister is prepared to cast blame directly on Vladimir Putin. We'll also get his reaction to the leak of U.S. intelligence on Ukraine's military weakness, various weaknesses. It's all coming up in the next hour, Jake. Very newsy. We'll definitely be watching, Wolf. We'll see you at the Situation Room at 6 p.m. Eastern, coming up in just under uh, 15 minutes. With new numbers showing the cost of housing on the rise, see a troubling effect as CNN goes inside one of the busiest eviction courts in the United States. Our money lead now, new numbers from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show that U.S. inflation has fallen to its lowest level since May 2021. However, there remain concerns when it comes to the U.S. housing market. Prices are still on the rise there. CNN's Gabe Cohen visited a housing court in Texas as millions of Americans are falling behind in their rent and mortgage payments and some are getting kicked out of their homes. Once a week, Houston residents pack into one of the busiest eviction courts in Texas. Good morning. On this day, more than 200 cases before noon. The plaintiff or possession of the premises to the plaintiff in favor of the plaintiff. As landlords take back their properties and families plead to stay in their homes. That's what scares me the most. 
Jonathan Morrison is being evicted. He's been struggling with rent, he says, since his wife, the family breadwinner, died in December, leaving him to raise their daughter alone. The place to go. My 10-year-old is scared, too. In several cities, including Houston, evictions are surging, even beyond pre-pandemic norms. More than 5 million U.S. households are behind on rent. Experts blame a perfect storm. Rents keep rising amid high inflation. COVID moratoriums on evictions are ending. And pandemic programs, especially rental assistance, are running dry. In mid-March, a Texas rent relief program had to stop accepting applications just two days after starting, overwhelmed by the demand. It's just a simple hard times. Winona Brown says she fell behind on rent in February after losing her job. A photo of her kids in one hand, an eviction notice in the other. She says she wants to pay off her debt, but fears she may have to move. I've tried to make it, and, um, you know, it's tough to, to do it on your own. Some cities have bucked this trend, largely thanks to new tenant protections, like more funding for free legal assistance during an eviction, which few cities or states guarantee. Advocates say it's kept far more families in their homes. Evictions disproportionately impact black and Hispanic communities and can make it far tougher for families to find homes later. Kathy Bonilla, a single mom eight months pregnant with her fifth child, says she lost her government housing vouchers last year because of a paperwork issue. And now she's fighting a looming eviction with legal aid from a nonprofit. It's like someone got, got their hands around my neck. I want to give up, but my family like, don't give up. If you give up, what about your kids? But I had it up to here already. Erica Bowman is packing up her home to avoid packing into a courtroom. She says she's struggled to keep up with rent in recent months since it went up more than $200 right as she started battling cancer. Everything just kind of hit all at once at that moment. She and her kids need to be out in the coming days, unsure where they'll go. Trying to continue to stay positive and keep a smile on my face and to also not allow my children to feel the pressures of what I'm going through at this time has been extremely difficult. And a tricky piece of this puzzle is the lack of data that a lot of cities and states don't actively track evictions. And so, Jake, we really don't know the full scale of the national problem right now. And advocates say that makes it much harder to find solutions. Right. You can't come up with policy if you don't know how to fix it. Uh, Gabe, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Powerful story. In sports, a Minnesota Twins player is going to have to have surgery after being hit in the face with a fastball this afternoon. We're about to show you what happened, but uh, a warning, it might be a little hard to watch. Oh! Farmer gets hit above the shoulder. The manager of the Minnesota Twins says that Kyle Farmer needs surgery to realign his teeth and fix a laceration on his lower jaw. The manager says it's a miracle that Farmer doesn't have any broken bones and that the injury isn't worse, given that that pitch was 92 miles per hour. For anyone who cares, the Twins went on to win that game against the Chicago White Sox, 3-1. Our best wishes to Kyle Farmer for a quick recovery. That's brutal. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to The Lead once you get your podcast, all two hours, just sitting there like a delicious cheesesteak from Gino's. 
Our coverage continues next with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.